upon the brass cormorant, you staunch onions. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. It has been a busy few days, a busy few days for myself. I've been on the road and back touring. I hadn't done a gig in four months because I needed time to finish my book. And now my book is done, it's completely written. I'm back on the road doing gigs. I was in the Cork Opera House. Had a wonderful time there and a magnificent crowd. And then I went straight on to Dublin to do a gig in Vicar Street. And I'm a ferociously worn out boy as a result. Because gigging, gigging is magnificent fun. I adore it. But it's also kind of overwhelming. Because I'm standing out there in front of an audience of a thousand people. And the adrenaline rush from that and the joy of it is magnificent. But it takes hours to switch off then after that. So I'd be off stage at 11, get back home to Limerick at maybe 2 or 3 in the morning. And then I just don't sleep. There's too much excitement after the gig. You feel giddy and then your brain decides when it wants to turn off many hours later. But I do have an absolutely magnificent guest for you this week. I spoke to a woman called Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan. She's a psychologist. She teaches developmental psychology. And an area of interest for her is the impacts that poverty and marginalization can have on the human brain and the human personality. And Katrina herself, she's got a book out at the moment, it's a bestseller, called Poor. And it's a memoir of her life because Katrina grew up in debilitating poverty, surrounded by addiction and marginalized by society. So what you get with Katrina is not just an expert not just an expert in psychology but someone whose practical expertise is filtered through a lens of lived experience Katrina also is someone who very much believes in democratizing academic information when she speaks about psychology she speaks about it in a way that anybody can understand she doesn't use language that's meant for other academics to exclude people. She speaks about psychology in a very human way, a very open human way that emphasizes humor, self-compassion, vulnerability, and storytelling. And Katrina was my guest in Vicar Street last night, and it was a fucking powerful gig. It was astounding. There were about 1,100 people there. And the collective energy of the room was 100% focused on Katrina's words and Katrina's story. And there was a beautiful mood in the room. And there was this real feeling of community and a kind of a meditative contemplation. So that's what this week's podcast is. I want to share that chat that me and Katrina had with you. I want to give you a little heads up because... There's themes in this podcast, themes around trauma, addiction and abuse. But having said that, because Katrina is a professional, she speaks about it in a way that's mindful of the safety of the audience. So I'm just flagging that with you in case you're like, I'd rather not listen to a podcast that contains these themes today. But you know yourselves from listening to this podcast Anytime difficult issues are spoken about in this podcast, it's always handled with humanity, compassion, 
intelligence, understanding, empathy, and with people's safety in mind. So what me and Katrina speak about is poverty, the impacts of poverty on the human brain, lack of access to education and opportunities for people who've been marginalised, and something Katrina is really passionate about is trying to change, trying to change the system in Ireland around education. Not just changing the system in terms of improving access to education, but also asking questions such as what is a teacher and who gets to be a teacher? We didn't chat about it on stage, but backstage we bonded over a book that we both loved called Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. It's a book I intend to do a podcast on at some point, but it's a revolutionary book about education, really. Paulo Freire argues that the education system is used as a tool of oppression. He argues that education in Western countries exists just to reinforce existing power structures and to encourage in students a sense of passivity and submissiveness towards power. And some of that shines through in Katrina's words in this podcast, especially when she speaks about education. So without further ado, here is the wonderful conversation I had with the magnificent Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan. Hello. How are you? How are you? Is that mic okay for you now? Is it comfortable? Is it okay for everybody else? Yeah. yeah I, I deliberately get us uncomfortable seats. That's great. Keeps because, us awake. But it's true. Yeah. I, I'd be doing gigs and the seats are just too comfortable and you forget that you're up on stage. I do that in lectures as well. Do you? No. The universe, no, I don't. But sometimes they give you like a proper... I did a gig up in Mullingar, right? And I was interviewing... He was a fellow who used to be in show bands and he was about 76 and like he fell asleep in the middle of the podcast. (laughs) Seriously, fell asleep up on stage. I was very worried. I didn't think he'd fallen asleep at all, but he had. Such was the comfort of the chair that I'd provided. So these are a nice middle ground. I know, but when you're a woman of my age, you need a bit of cushion. Underneath the, the ass. Fair play. Yeah. Just, um, to, just can I clarify something before we go on? What? I know this accent sounds Brit. The context of the hairs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's Katrina O'Sullivan. Just to clarify, it's fully Irish. It's green when I bleed. That's you know that's the first question I'm going to ask you because anyone. Any Irish people I knew who grew up in England yeah. had a very hard time coming back home just with the accents. Yeah. Did you go through that as a kid? I still, I still get it now. Like, my very good friend who's here now in the room. In <laughs> <laughs> Holly. Um, so, I, we, we went to England to uh, visit, watch Hamilton. And we got on the British Rail. And her husband works for Irish Rail. And I was like, oh my God, the trains are amazing here. And she, in England, and she was like, how fucking dare you? <laughs> See, you come home, the, <laughs> the, the real Brit comes out. But yeah, no, moving back here, yeah, moving here, back here, because we were back and forward all of our lives. And we grew up, we were, we were an Irish family mm-hmm. in England. Like, we grew up in this multicultural community in the heart of England, Coventry, and there's Irish, 
we all stu- we all stayed together. Mm-hmm. And then there was Scottish and Jamaican and Asian. We all mingled. And then mm-hmm. you come back to Ireland and you're in Temple Bar at two o'clock in the morning. And someone goes, see you. <laughs> 700 years or 5,000 years. I can't remember, but your people. And it's like, oh, for fuck's sake. But yeah, so it can be hard. It can be hard. Yeah. Um, There's a good point to it, though, because nobody knows how common I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, apart from the amount that I swear, so no one knows really. So you just released a book called Poor, which is a memoir. Yeah. And if can I synopsize your story for you? You can try. I'll try my best. Mm-hmm. Um, in your own words, you you experienced the extreme poverty as a kid. Yeah. And now you you, you went and did a doctorate in Trinity College. Yeah. And that is a journey which society says is impossible. Yeah. And now you've kind of dedicated yourself to going, well, if I can do it, how can we improve the system so that someone else who had was marginalized by poverty can yeah. also access this type of education? Yeah, so I grew up, we weren't working class. So like we talk about working class people. I come from what we call in academia, the underclasses, but I would call it like social welfare class or criminal mm-hmm. class. So I grew up uh, with a family, um, both my parents are heroin addicts. Mm-hmm. Like most people in Ireland have experienced alcoholism in their family mm-hmm. at some point or another. But in my case, unfortunately, both my parents were heroin addicts. Mm-hmm. So what that meant was like extreme poverty. Like I didn't have breakfast in the mornings. I I pissed the bed and Mm -hmm. wasn't washed. So I go to school smelly. And um, yeah, so the vulnerability that that brings and the trauma that exposes you to is really horrible. And it's not unique to me. There's 670,000 people in Ireland currently living in poverty. Like poverty, there's people using food banks. But in my case, yeah, I wrote my memoir, my book, because I was really lucky I feel really privileged actually, actually to have grown up poor. Uh, it's given me insight and it really helped me to understand a lot of humanity. But um, I was really lucky that I was poor in a time in Ireland where there was loads of money. There was mm-hmm. a Celtic tiger. So I lived in Summerhill in Dublin One for years and I, and I was a lone parent, single parent. I was on my social welfare, had a little cash in hand job. Talking about Irish Rail, I actually was a cleaner in Connolly Station. <laughs> Two hours a day, the fucking dirtiest kip you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> and um, sorry, Dave, um, if you're here from Irish Rail. But I, I, yeah, like I was on the pig's back. Like that was mm-hmm. the goal, like to get your book, to get your rent allowance, had a little flat. But I was like frustrated and I was lucky that in at the time there was loads of money it was late 90s 2000s loads of money in the state and when there's money it kind of trickles down to the poor mm-hmm. people and they try and save us and make them like them and so when I was I was desperate I used to go down to this community place in Summerhill lovely fella Joe Dowling used to go down and have a fag cup of tea I'd be like Joe is this it and he just referred me to like, so I got free counselling firstly in Sheriff Street. That was great. And then I met but a girl. What type of counselling was that at the time? Like, well, would you know now looking back? I do now. But at the time, it was funny because it was free and it was in uh, the church in Sheriff Street. And I, 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 Mary was her name. I actually think she was one of the people that saved my life mm-hmm. because I used to go in and I used to be like, 
Mary, I fucking hate my mum and dad. And they never, they never did anything. She'd be like, I know, it's, it's awful. And you're an amazing person. And then I'd go in, Mary, I love my mum and dad. And I really want them in my life. And she's like, I know, and you're an amazing person. And now I know that it was humanistic yeah. approach. But at yeah. the time, like she was, I know now because of psychology, but Mary was just this woman who just affirmed me all the Intrinsic time. Intrinsic work the whole Intrinsic time. Intrinsic work. It was just like, you're valuable, your views are valuable. And the mad thing was, like, I was all over the fucking place. Like, I couldn't hold down a relationship. I couldn't hold down a job. I couldn't pay my bills. I was like, nothing like I am today. Would you... Would you have been a, an emotionally reactive person at that time? <laughs> yes. I still <laughs> I still am a little bit of a... If you follow me on social media, <laughs> sometimes I can be a little bit emotionally reactive. Yeah, I have to, I have to keep it in. I've all, but I think, like, uh, one of the benefits of coming from where I come from is that we're all like that. Like, mm -hmm. I loved... Like, in our street, if someone did something to you, you say, see you, you fucking prick, mm -hmm. and you'd have a fight with him, and mm -hmm. then it'd be gone. Like, but now, like, where I work now, like, in middle-class life, yeah. nobody says fuck all. So, like, I can hate someone or, like, they annoy me <laughs> and they don't say anything to each other. So, like, but I would have been... passive aggression. Not, yeah, so, but they just be like, oh, yes, that's fine. Or, yes, that's fine. But they don't say it. So, like, I would have been emotionally reactive. Obviously, I had a lot of trauma and that really made me really fragile and mm. un... Um, I didn't trust. I was constantly on, on watch for people to let me down and I was defensive. But emotional expression, I think that's one of the gifts that I got from being poor. Like, I, I, I speak my mind. Like mm -hmm. I, So when I got the opportunity, so like I lived in town and one of the things that changed my life, so I met a girl one day outside Penny's. I was doing my little bit of shopping on a Thursday after I got my book. I met a girl outside Penny's and I was 20, 21, and she was like, I'm in Trinity College. And she's from town as well. Mm -hmm. And she's a lone parent. And I was like, fuck off. I only knew people who robbed bikes in there. Now they rob laptops, but back to, now they rob, they, they rob bikes. So I didn't think they let you in. But like one of the skills that I bring with me from my community was like, I've balls. Mm -hmm. Like I know how to advocate. Now it would be advocating with the social welfare or the social services or the guards, but I knew how to speak for myself. So I like used that skill, marched straight over to Trinity College at the time. She told me about this course, the Trinity Access Program. And I knocked on the door and I was like, uh, I'm great. Karen told me about this program. Please let me in. And so, yeah, emotional reaction is in me. But at that particular time, when I went to see Mary, I definitely, it definitely affected my capability of maintaining relationships. Mm -hmm. And I constantly chose the wrong man. It was mm -hmm. just unavailable men. And I remember I used to be in with Mary telling her about all my... My, my kids are going to listen, but my sexual exploits. And one day I was like looking down, because I always used to look down. I hated looking in her face. And um, I, I noticed her shoes, and they were like these really black, boring shoes. And I thought, nuns wear shoes like that. So I looked at her clothes then, I, and this was like six months in, and I was like, Mary, are you a nun? And she was like, yes, Katrina, I am. <laughs> and I'd like talked about fucking anal. <laughs> I'd been like, I don't, I don't know, I'd been like asleep and I talked about everything, abortion, oh my God, I was like, fuck. And, and she was like, it's tight, you're totally fine, like you're totally fine. She but went complete person-centered, there was no judgment. No, never. I'm, human beings are no. in this room. Yeah, beautiful. Ah, oh, fair play to her. And I, and I she suppose, had to park her Christianity right there. Oh yeah, she did. 
She never. Fair fucks. But I think that is Christianity. Ah, uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's of the course. real Christianity. But it is. That's Christ to be <laughs> no, doing it. But it's true. It's one. true. It's not the one everyone's experienced, 100%. but it's supposed to be non-judgment, caring, loving, Absolutely. accepting. And she was just so wonderful with me. And she didn't try and convert you over to the old bread, the old haunted bread. Oh, I have a... I remember my granddad was a proper Catholic, you know, proper. He went every single day. And he was a proper Catholic in the sense that he was giving and loving and like he used to, there was a traveler woman who used to knock on the door every Friday. I didn't know the story back then because it was different in England with travelers. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we didn't have any negative views in England with travelers, mm -hmm. but it's different here. Like, mm -hmm. I, it shocks me how bad. Socially we, acceptable racism. Yes. Always like, has been. So, this little woman used to knock the door every Friday to my granddad's house in Clontarf, and he'd give her, like, he'd have an envelope and he'd just give her money. And I'd be like, what's that? Da shh, shh. Don't say anything. Like, he was a Catholic. Like, he gave to charity. He was kind. And, but he used to take me to... I used to have to bring him to Mass because he was fat and old. And he couldn't drive himself. And uh, whenever I'd sit down in Mass with him, every day he'd go. And every day he'd say, don't take the bread, don't take the bread, don't take the bread. <laughs> like, I'd fucking going to set on fire because I wasn't a Catholic. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you weren't allowed. No, I wasn't allowed. <laughs> and then I was in the Rutland Centre once. I was in the Rutland Centre in treatment. And um, they did Mass... And like, because everyone was taking the bread, I took the bread and then I was like, shit, I shouldn't have took the bread. So I went to the toilet and spat the bread down the toilet. And I was like, shit, I, I, I spat Jesus down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> so I was in group then. I was like, I spat the bread down the toilet. And they were like, yeah, but you robbed people too. So <laughs> it wasn't so bad. The bread, yeah. Maybe that's what was wrong with me, that I wasn't a Catholic. You didn't get baptized? No, my dad was too lazy. He would like to say, they would like, my dad, when he used to be drunk, he'd be like, oh, it's because I had a bad experience in, uh, he went to school here, you know, the Christian brothers, but it wasn't, they were just too fucking lazy. They were stoned out of their head all the time. They didn't feed us, not alone baptize us. <laughs> I did have a children's Bible, though, because I got it from the second-hand shop, and I used to read it every night. It surprises me how little Irish people know about the Irish, the stories in the Bible. Yeah. Like Ruth is a fantastic story. What's the story of Ruth? I don't know that. So Lot is this, oh my God. I can't believe I'm speaking about religion here. But Lot was there, was, there was this bad city, really bad city. You know the way there's always bad cities in the Bible? Sodom and Gomorrah. So there was, yeah. And God came and said to Lot, Lot, we're going to burn the city and you need to leave, take your family, but don't look back. Anybody looks back, it's, a, it's obviously a good thing. Like, don't look back. So they all left, and Ruth, what did she fucking do? She looked back, and she turned to salt. She turned into a pillar of salt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I had that book, and so maybe, uh, yeah, Christianity might have saved me a little bit. When... Anyway. What I'm noticing here, and I love it, is... So you're speaking a lot about painful, traumatic things, yeah. but you're doing it the whole time with crack and humour. yeah. How important is crack and humor and playfulness for you when you're speaking about something that we ex it's something I think about a lot is is how we're expected to be solemn. We're expected to pretend this seriousness. Yeah. And when you pretend this seriousness, it just makes people nervous. Yeah. But if you allow humor and playfulness in, you can actually be really serious about something and give it a lot more respect than if you do this fake solemnity thing. Yeah, I think what's most important is just to be yourself. I think I'm really lucky to have, have a good few years of 
recovery in terms of like therapy and I don't know if I hadn't be if I wasn't healed as much as I am whether the crack would be there I was mm -hmm. always cracked though mm -hmm. like my whole family were cracked like and in my book like I write about that you know addiction and poverty like we're great people like mm -hmm. it's fucking great people in the heart of Dublin or Cork or Limerick even, Kerry. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean though? Yeah. There's great, there's so much complexity. This idea that poverty and trauma is just so fucking sad and dark. It is that. But there's also like lightheartedness and fun and love and warmth and music and all these things. And so, yeah, I, you know, I, I think maybe I'm healed a bit enough to joke and laugh about things. There's some things I'm really serious about though. Mm -hmm. And I don't take shit. Mm -hmm. I don't take prejudice and I don't let people away with saying mean things or big things that are bad. But I also think in order to like communicate my story, it is important to do it in a way that's accessible to people. Mm -hmm. And I do that with lectures in psychology. Like I always try to find ways to reach the audience. I think a good teacher, a good lecturer is a person who takes their knowledge and is able to translate it in, in a way that it's accessible to people. Effective communication happens in the language of the receiver. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so having a bit of crack is just part of who I've always been. And um, it's got me in trouble, by the way. I'd imagine so. Especially in school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, having something I'd like to know about is when you began your journey, right, of academia, learning about psychology, learning about developmental psychology, yeah. how did it feel for you to be learning about this stuff and the impact of, we'll say, poverty and trauma on a child's brain, and then for you to look back on your own childhood at the same time? Yeah. What was that dual experience like to go, oh, I'm reading about me here? There's some... It, one thing about uh, college and academia is like we are we write and uh, in ways that is very subjective like it's not accessible mm -hmm. so like I'd be reading about trauma but it's written in a way that's really scientific so mm -hmm. in some ways it wouldn't hit me mm -hmm. but there would be times in lectures so I remember one lecturer come in and he was a great guy he's really charismatic and he and he's like I'm going to teach you about risk and resilience today and he's like before we begin I want you all to write down any risk and protective factors you may have had in your life and he gave a few examples you know like rich family, good community, you know, maybe, I don't know, you got bullied or something. And so I'm there and I'm like, risk, 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 risk. I'm writing and the girl sitting next to me, I'll never forget Amy, beautiful person. She was like, I cannot think of one risk. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, it really fucking hurt me. Mm -hmm. But like, and I, what was that hurt? Like, I knew I was different. So like, you know, People who, so people who do psychology are generally high point students. So they're generally mm -hmm. 550s. And to get high points in, in school, you have to be generally privileged. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to pray, play, pray, play, pay and supplement your education. You have to be in a good school, in a good community generally, mm -hmm. maybe go to a private school. And so what happens then? You've got this concentration of kids that are really privileged. You probably haven't been mm -hmm. through the shit I've been through. Like I guarantee no one in my class had a brother in prison, a sister mm -hmm. in homelessness, a kid on his own. And so like it, it, it was really magnified to me how different I was mm -hmm. and how different my experience was. Previous to that, I was walking around with a lot of people who'd been through shit as well. It, it, because we all lived in poverty together, all corralled into the same community. And then I'm in Trinity and all these kind of posh kids. And that's hard, like, because I'm like, oh, 
that's really sad. I feel really sad for myself. But then there was another part, there was this other part of me that was like, I was getting firsts. Like, that's an A if you didn't go to university, which is fucking deadly. Because <laughs> I'm, but like, so there was these two sides of me in university. There was this part of me that was really aware of the trauma and the sadness and all the things. And they were talking about risk and resilience. And then there was this other side of me that was realizing how intelligent I am mm -hmm. because I'd been taught all my life that I wasn't. Like school taught me that I was stupid. Mm -hmm. I left, I, I fi finished at 15. I didn't get an exam. My, my school teachers just expected me to finish secondary, if that, and I didn't even do that. Mm -hmm. So all of that was internalized to this like stupid girl who was like gonna be a cleaner at best or maybe a hairdresser. So I'm in Trinity and I'm like all this, learning all this stuff and I'm like really sad for myself. But then there's this other piece going, you're actually fucking deadly. You're brilliant. So like I had these two like shared experiences. But in terms of the psychology, it really taught me about parenting, like attachment theory. When I learned about attachment theory, it made me want to be a better mother in mm -hmm. my life. I want to want to make sure that the kids had that security and it explained a lot. So yeah, Trinity and psychology had its mixed feeling, but we we in academia, we make it inaccessible, so you don't yeah. feel it. You don't actually feel it unless someone talks to you in a, in a correct way or they teach it in a correct way. Um, one thing I'd like to hark back to there is when you spoke about, we'll say, the, the pain you felt when that person beside you didn't have any of these risks. Yeah. And you're feeling this pain for you as a child, basically. Yeah. And I relate to some of that myself because, so I didn't grow up with poverty but I, I'm autistic, mm. so my experience at school, I, I ended up in the type of classroom where the person beside me would have experienced the type of poverty that you're describing. Yeah. And we were all put in the same thing. Yeah. So me who's autistic, another person who might have been experiencing abuse, someone else who's really poor, dyslexia, and everyone is thrown into one class where it's... You're just told you're all thick and I know. you're good for nothing. And even when the career guidance person would come in, we were kind of told to just nudge towards quitting. Yeah. You know, that kind of nudge. Yeah. Ah, you do, I, me, I remember the career guidance counselor saying, ah, you don't want to be accountants or any of that stuff. Don't mind that stuff that they're doing up there. And it was just a way to get us to quit because we were bold. Because what else are you going to do? Like, uh, my identity in school became... Uh, I'm really good at being bold. I'm fucking brilliant at being bold and acting out. Because yeah. school was hell for me. But something that I have difficulty with, when you said there about the pain that you felt, when you look back, for me, I try all the time to go to young me, child me, and to have compassion for that child. And mm. it's real fucking difficult. Because I know, because I've had moments like that too, yeah. where... Like, I'd have loved to have done fucking... Like, I, I, I did psychology. I, I got no leave insert. I got no leave insert. So I managed to get in on an access thing when I was yeah. a mature student. But I'd love... I, I write books now. I'd love to have studied fucking literature. I I'd have, Not a fucking hope was that there for me. Because I, I didn't get a leave insert. And when I'm writing books and I meet other people who went to Trinity and studied literature, I do feel pain for young me yeah. who could have done it. And I have difficulty, the journey that I'm on is learning to hug young me. Exactly. How are you finding that journey? That, yeah, the book, I dedicate 
the book to seven-year-old me. Mm -hmm. And um, it's hard because I, I know that there's period, there's parts of my life where I was definitely, um, there's a stamp on me at that point in my life. So I, I experienced abuse. When you grow up in a family like mine, um, when you're vulnerable and mm -hmm. you're poor, people, perverts mm -hmm. and bad people really see you as uh, easy target mm -hmm. and so lots of kids who grow up and it's one of the reasons I wrote my book because I wanted to like contextualize what poverty can do it's not just that you don't have enough food like it makes you vulnerable to all these things and affects how you feel and see about yourself see yourself and feel about yourself and it can be through abuse be it sexual emotional or in school but them things then you you have to spend a lifetime trying to recover from them. Mm -hmm. and, and like you, there's that seven-year-old, there's a seven-year-old girl in me and all the women here and, and the men who, like I was this bright, like now, bright, vivacious, really pretty girl <laughs> who like had so much expectation and hope and wonder at life. And all of a sudden that was taken from me. It was already affected by the fact that I would find my dad with a needle in his groin overdosed. Mm -hmm. But then I was abused and I was and the, the total innocence of me was taken away. And, mm -hmm. I, and, and then the expectation in education is for you to go in and perform like everybody else. Now the school knew, so you, mm -hmm. we know, like I know as an educator when someone's struggling. Mm -hmm. And the school knew, and the expectation was for me to perform it like everybody else, despite the fact that we had no money, no food, and everything else. And so, like, the lo there's a lifetime of recovery. And you're being judged against the person who's getting hot meals and two parents and working. And yeah, a hug, yeah, and, and a, a hug. tutor if they need it, and a, and a clean bed. And, yeah. and um, so, but in terms of that seven-year-old, like... I have to like, you know, I've been in therapy for 10 years nearly. Mm -hmm. Like I see a therapist now on a regular basis mm -hmm. because I want to love her. Like I mm -hmm. want to go, I have gone back to her and said, you know, you've done nothing because the unfortunate thing, and I learned this from psychology is you have a very immature brain as a child, like a little kid and your world, you're the center of your world. And so if bad things happen, you're the center of that and your natural, natural response to that is it must be me. Yeah. So like I've spent a lifetime going, it must be me. And then what happens is sometimes, and I talk about this in the book, there's this concept in psychology or in biology of homeostasis, mm -hmm. whereby your body looks to maintain what it's used to. So if you're succeeding all the time, your body and your whole psyche aims to just continue to feel that. So you enter situations that that merit that but sometimes when you've experienced poverty and loss and failure and hurt it becomes your natural sta status is it like a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah when you search for it, things that that don't benefit your but there's growth? no there's no choice in that mm -hmm. so it's an it's a nature thing so we mm -hmm. we all so what happened with me was like i would Ha like my self-esteem was affected, my homeostasis. So like failing and being a failure and not feeling good were a natural position for me. And so I would continue to reproduce them, them feelings or enter situations that would. And so I've had to spend a lifetime trying to find that little girl again, like learn how to do a cartwheel again yeah. and feel okay about flashing my knickers. I'm not going to do that here. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and tell myself quite regularly which is what I do like you didn't do anything mm -hmm. you didn't do anything 
And then the other thing about, I suppose, um, healing for me has been when I went to Trinity and became educated, the thing that really... So my, my mom and dad were really ill. They were mentally ill. Addiction is the worst mental illness that you can have. The reason for that, I say that, because there's so many that are bad, but it's the only one that you're blamed for. They're so judged. So like everybody in our life treated them badly as if they were choosing to ruin their own lives and they had no choice. And I can say that now with honest to God love. Like mm -hmm. I know my mom wanted to get up and feed us every day mm -hmm. and she couldn't because she was ill. But uh, the system that we grew up in, there were people in that system who had lots of privilege and lots of ability to help us, and they didn't. And when I went to Trinity, I'm going through all this process of like healing and growing and realizing I'm fucking deadly. And then all of a sudden I'm like looking around and I'm like, these rich people who have everything know, know that the system is rigged. They know that kids like me are just being pushed to the wayside and they're doing fuck all about it. And that made me so angry. It still makes me angry because while I'm like the odd one out, there's millions of kids like me mm -hmm. who are so talented and gifted, who are just getting lost to abuse, poverty, neglect, hate, hurt, and all these things. So, you know, it was like actually re-experiencing it when I went into Trinity. Mm -hmm. Because before that, it was all my fault. I was fucking up. I was the one who didn't make the right choice. I failed school. I was picking a bad fella. I was picking a bad job. I didn't know how to change my life. Because that's what we're taught. You can change your life. Mm -hmm. You can't fucking change your life unless you have shit. And you don't get shit unless people give you it. And so I went to Trinity and I was, always, and I was really hurt. Were you in therapy when you were having these reflections? Yeah. Did you have someone to go to and say, I felt this during the week. I'm really angry about this. Um, yeah, I would. What, what, was, what I was lucky... So, like, in access, so when you get into university, the hard thing about it is, is you become really separate from your community. So, like, I'm I went to Trinity. I was hanging around with girls from Summerhill. We're all having a fag, drinking tea. And then I'm, I'm in Trinity after a year, and I'm, like, spouting fucking political theories. Mm -hmm. And my friends are like, what the fuck are you on about? Yeah. We don't care, you know. So there's this distance. But I was lucky that there were other people who were going through it, the transformation at the same time. So we kind of like formed little groups. Mm -hmm. So lo lots of my friends are former access students or students who come from poverty, who've been through education. And we have our little like rants with each other. I suppose, yeah, so the reflections would have come from... But actually, the reflections would have come from the fact that I was getting educated, because education makes you feel and think differently and like made my brain think about things and connect things differently. So like previously I'd be like, I'm a mess, I've made bad choices, like real basic, I'm a mess, I made bad choices, I should have done better. Then all of a sudden you've got these lectures teaching you about sociology and the way the world works. And I'm like, oh, well, then it, it's not, maybe it's not me. Maybe it's the fact that I was fucking placed in a council house and we weren't given any support. So we went to a shit school and the teachers fucking hated us. And some of us got hit by the teachers and the social services were terrible. And then I was like, oh, so this isn't me. So like, I think education made me wake up and mm -hmm. see it differently. Um, do you find a lot of push? So what you're speaking about there is a very expensive solution. Because <laughs> you're talking about 
to put resources back into the community at the yeah. earliest, and that's very expensive. Like, one of the things that pissed me off during the week there was um, the fucking armed guards in Dublin. Oh. Like, fuck off. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's such... Um, it's just like a little solution that keeps a certain type of person happy yeah. and doesn't address any of the marginalisation as to wh- why, why is that happening? Yeah. And do you find that pushback a lot in the job? Because you've done research and you're yeah. someone who wants to bring what you're researching into policy. Yeah. What type of pushback are you getting? Oh, well... Uh, and what happens when you speak to... A, if you speak to a politician and they just don't have any context whatsoever for what you're speaking about because they grew up with money? I think the thing is, when you have a doctorate, like that's a that's a that gives you a passport mm-hmm. to have conversations. So if I was just still on my lone parent book, no one's going to be listening to me. But the fact that I'm a doctor and I'm an academic and I work in a university, it gives me like the ability to have conversations. Mm-hmm. And so, like I use the privilege that I have to ensure that I can have these conversations. And also, so people can't deny. So when I wrote my book, I wrote about myself as a child. And when I talk about this stuff, I talk about my experience as a child. And like a politician can't deny yeah. abuse, can't deny neglect from the state to a person. Yeah. And especially a person who's strong like I am, but also has the academic ability to make an argument. And generally, like, I, like I've been really successful in my, in my work because I think I have that kind of ability to bring my personal experience as well as the academics with it. And so, but there are people who just, I met a woman one day, she said to me, uh, when the book came out, I was, and she said, oh, I read your article, it was amazing. Now my husband, now he's not into that poverty stuff, do you know what I mean? Like, but like, and we did have a girl and we were renting a room to her and she was a lone parent. She left it in a right mess and we won't be doing that again. So, you know, like, uh, don't get what me wrong. What point was she making? She was saying I was deadly, but because I was behaving. Okay. And her husband wasn't really into that, you know. Yeah. So the, I do come across, I, you know what? People don't really share their prejudice who are educated. They don't mm-hmm. really share it openly. Um, it only happens in times where, so say, for example, in the university, I'm trying to get a program, I'm trying to get, I need to be careful, I might lose my job, I'm trying to get, uh, fuck it, anyway, as long as you all buy my book, I'll be fine, okay? <laughs> but um, I'm trying to get a program for gender inequality, true, you know, and uh, a program for poor girls in, mm-hmm. in, in gender, who are, don't have access to science, and like, it's, I've men like standing up saying there's no issue. Men have the issue. Men, it's a problem for men. And would be biased against men to do stuff for women. Mm-hmm. And like they're very academically sound in their arguments. Is this the equality of opportunity versus equality of what is this? John uh, Peterson goes on with this. Oh my God! Don't talk about him. Please. I know, but unfortunately, I have to on this occasion. Yes. Equ- equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. Yes. So Jordan Peterson says. Everyone should have equality of opportunity, mm. not equality of outcome. But if you say equality of opportunity, it assumes that everybody is on the level playing field. Exactly. And it's not the case. No, exactly. But like, so I experience bias, yeah, and I use research. So I've, 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 I've actually got a, um, a system mm-hmm. to, get, to get past people who are actively prejudiced, in my mm-hmm. view. I mean, I just don't think there's any excuse to be ignoring poverty and mm-hmm. allowing kids, especially nowadays, to fail in education or communicate to them that they're not very good 
through our education system, and that's what we do. The Leaving Cert particularly, yeah. we just tell kids, you're a fuck up, you're a failure, you're not good enough. Just you're by fucked the fact for life. Yeah. You don't get a Leaving Cert and you are fucked for life. I know. That's the message that I was clearly given. Like. And there's kids who are in particular communities who wo- won't get a good, good Leaving Cert, as in like good 600 points, because they don't have all the, uh, the resources that these kids do. And mm-hmm. they walk around them with this belief about themselves that actually predicts then the jobs they go for, the mm-hmm. jobs they think they're suited to. It's really frustrating. So anyway... And that's the internal script. Yeah. I fight with people, though, in my job. In in a nice way. (laughs) And and like I said, they're so middle class, they don't say fuck all to you. I'd be like, you can't say that. (laughs) You can't say that publicly. That's wrong. Like, you're offending me. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Didn't really, you know. So there's a... But there's a method to try and make changes. And like for me, like I just focus on, right, I wrote my book. It was really costly psychologically for me to write my book because I'm telling the world I was abused. I had an abortion. I had loads of sexual partners. Do you know when you write something down and you get it out, for you to have to go through your life like that and to write it down, the process of that, was that difficult for you to do on an emotional level? <laughs> it's really weird. Like, or was it cathartic? It was beautiful and horrible all in one. Mm-hmm. So um, I worked with... Penguin came to me and asked me if I'd write my book. And I was like, yeah. And then they just send you off. And so I was like, mm-hmm. I was born on... <laughs> you, how the fuck to do this? You know, I'm used to writing science papers. So anyway, I, it was cathartic. But what was amazing was like, I, I was given this amazing woman to work with Lisa, who's an editor, a freelancer. And we, like, she, so I wrote loads and sent it to mm-hmm. her. And then she was like, that shit, mm-hmm. <laughs> that shit, no one's interested in that. I remember writing loads of stories about Trinity. She's like, nobody cares about your Trinity stories. I was <laughs> like, I fucking care. She's like, no, well, nobody else will read that. But what was amazing with her, one particular thing is that, like, I believed, so I got pregnant at 15 and, and was homeless. and was, I had my son in a mother and baby hostel. And um, I, when I was writing about me at that age, was really hard on myself. Mm-hmm. And I remember I used to send her voice notes of like my, the stories and she'd, she'd type them and send them back to me sometimes. And I remember saying to her, like she, she came back to me one day, she said, she was very hard, she, she's here. She said to me, um, I'm not fucking writing that about you. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what do you mean? She's like, you can't say that about yourself. Wow. And I, it really helped me. I feel sad because you know, you talk about seven-year-old me, there's also a 13-year-old me who's like standing on a street corner. Were you corner. being judgmental towards yourself? Really hard. Mm-hmm. Like I made a mistake. I broke my life. Mm-hmm. I fucked it up. And like she, she could see the whole story, all of it together. And if you imagine like uh, your life is like a tapestry. My life was like this tapestry. I was seven. I was three. There was addiction. My parents, I was seven. Abuse, abuse. Going into care. And then pregnancy, 15. Joyriding. Robin, getting arrested. So all the robbing and arrested and joyriding and all the, f- the shit with fellas and everything. I was writing about that as if it was me. I was bad. So I'd gone from this vulnerable little girl who'd been traumatized and hurt to this 15-year-old who just got pregnant and fucked up her life. Mm-hmm. And Lisa was like, I'm not letting you say that about yourself. And that was beautiful because it really made me stop and go, was that my fault? Mm-hmm. Did I have a choice? And I didn't have a choice. I wished I'd had a choice. I didn't have a choice. I just went with whatever was fucking happening and all this brokenness was inside me 
And I was just trying to navigate that the best way I could. And being cool and robbing cars and smoking and taking drugs and all that was trying to like heal this fucking broken feeling inside of myself. And you found a sense of identity, I'm guessing, in being that person. Yeah, I did. But also it was escaping. But the book process aligned the tapestry. So it was like the lot. So I was, um, I was wrote about this thing about being on the beam. Uh, that's it. Like my friend used to say, when you're on the beam in life, you just feel fucking fully good. You're happy. And I imagine like there's a beam that shines through your whole life. And there's things that can happen that can just break the full light flow. Mm-hmm. And like when I had, you know, thought, sorry, when I thought about myself at 14, the light was coming through and it was just a dark patch. And when I wrote the book, it was like they just allowed me to just see all of myself in complete on the beam fully. And I was like, I'm actually all right with me. I didn't do anything wrong. Like, I'm a fucking great mm-hmm. person. I'm a survivor. I've done everything I could to raise my kids and be better. And I really didn't have a choice. And that was beautiful from writing the book. And I'll be always grateful that I wrote it. Mm-hmm. Irrespective. Now it's a fucking bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> Fair play. <laughs> And, and uh, it's going to be made into a movie. Fuck off, is yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Fucking yeah. brilliant. Fair play. It is, yeah. Wow. So, but irrespective, honestly, irrespective of, of that, I am so, like, for myself, for my little me, it's like I can look back and see 13-year-old me in our shell suit with a little fucking hair up and a perm going, I'm here, it's okay. And then seven-year-old is standing behind her doing a little fucking cartwheels going, I'm here. That's amazing. Congratulations. That's astounding. Yeah. Um, something. When you mentioned there about, you know, when you were a teenager and you were joyriding and making these decisions that weren't in your own self-interest, like you said there that you didn't have a choice. Could you explain the psychology of what's going on there for someone who doesn't have a choice? Yeah, so... I suppose, I imagine, if you imagine the world is is your potential in terms of your brain Mm -hmm. and how it can function and all the decision-making that you can make. And, like, there's the front of your brain that really is involved in planning and in planning and making good decisions. The bit of your brain that says, don't have a beer on a Monday night Mm -hmm. because I've got work in the morning. And some of us have loads of... And, like, when you're poor and your nutrition is bad and you're not you're not looked after correctly and you experience trauma, sometimes then pieces of your brain don't function mm-hmm. in the same way. And so, like, but also, if you imagine, like, my stimulation, my cognitive capability was limited to, like, this is the world you live in. The rest of the world I didn't have any insight into. So I'd never met anybody who went to university. Didn't know anyone who lived in a, in a posh house didn't have any apart from people on the TV. So, like, I'm basically functioning on, like, what I see around me in my community. Mm-hmm. And what I see around me is poverty, addiction, being cool, you know, being defiant. You, you, you take what you can. You, you, and the, so, I mean, in terms of psychology, how could I have decided anything else? Yeah. The worst part about becoming educated and realizing that is that the people are empowering our governments, it be it in whatever country, they actually know this because they're taught this in education. Mm-hmm. But for me, I was just like 
living day to day. And that's generally what you do when you're poor. You live day to day, you survive. And like, I'm living in a community where like, if you're like, if you, I couldn't go outside and say, I love, sh- I love Shakespeare. Yeah. The fucking slagging I get from the yeah. lads at the end of the day. So, like, you're in this community where I was just, like, everyone was robbing cars, everyone was smoking hash, and you were just in that. And there was mm-hmm. no, like, reasoning where I shouldn't do this. The only thing that was there in me was I, I, I love to read. I always read. My dad blessed me with that. Like, he was an avid reader, and he I taught me to read. So, And I did love to learn. So, like, I did have this kind of, like, pull in my teens between being a good girl and going Mm -hmm. to school and doing well. Like, I wanted that because I liked the learning, but I also had this stronger pull towards, like, what I was used to and what I I was socialised into, which was... Like, you've got to imagine, like, my, my family, we sold drugs in our house. So, like, I'd be answering the door and selling drugs to people. Like, mm-hmm. you're not fucking, like, speaking about political theory when you're selling a bag of, you know, speed to someone at the door. Yeah. So, like, there was no choice in it, what I'm trying to say. And my, and my reasoning was primitive. And I don't mean that in a bad way, a derogative way, but I didn't have any other choices. And so, yeah, so I just end up... Doing, surviving day to day. I've been really concerned. The, from a psychology point of view as well, like you got to remember the trauma and the poverty really affected my self-esteem, mm-hmm. like in how I felt about myself as a human being. Remember that seven-year-old girl yeah. who thought she was bad because everything bad was happening? So mm-hmm. that voice is really loud, and I'm really fragile. And so like escaping and being cool and not having to be normal or have normal conversations was was just the way it was. So I think uh, there was no other thing that I could have been involved in mm-hmm. um, than crime and and standing around teenage pregnancies and stuff like that. Um, we're going to have a little break so you can have a piss and a pint. <laughs> and then we'll be back out in about 15 minutes. Is that all right? God bless. Let's have a little brief ocarina pause now. And you're going to hear some adverts. I'm in my home studio this week. I'm not in my office, I'm in my home studio, which means I do actually have my ocarina this week. So I'm going to play my ocarina, and you're going to hear some adverts, because I don't want you getting a little fright. I don't want you getting a fright from a loud advert. I play the ocarina gently, because it's late at night. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Pretty high-pitched. 
apologies to any dogs. Disappointing ocarina, I'll be honest. I need something that with a bit of a bit of a bassier notes. Way too high pitched. But look, there were some adverts there I don't know what for. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, if it brings you solace, joy, fun, distraction, whatever it is that has you listen to this podcast, please consider paying me for the work that I do because this is my full-time job, this is how I pay for, this how I rent out my office, how I pay all my bills, this is how I earn a living, this is what I do all the time and this is how I'm able to deliver a podcast each week through patron support. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month, that's it. And if you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. Listen for free. Because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast, I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. It also means I'm not beholden to advertisers. I'm an independent podcaster. I get to make podcasts about whatever I want. I don't have to worry about how many people are listening. I don't have to worry about being popular. What I got to worry about is, am I delivering the best podcast? Am I delivering to you something that I would like to listen to if I wasn't me? Am I being passionate each week? Am I speaking to guests who I genuinely want to speak to? People whose opinions I care about. People whose viewpoints I want to give a platform to. As opposed to bringing on a guest because, I don't know, they're popular right now and it'll bring in a lot of listens. I don't want to do that. Just some live gigs coming up. If you're at Electric Picnic this weekend, which is a big festival in Ireland, I am at Electric Picnic. I'm doing a live podcast at Electric Picnic on Saturday at 7.30 in the evening on the Ah Here Now stage in the Minefield Arena. So, if you're a podcast listener, if you listen to this podcast, if you're a 10-foot Brenda or a sweaty Emmett, come along to my live podcast. Come along to it, because the thing about doing podcasts at festivals is pricks can show up. And I don't want any pricks showing up. People who heckle, people who heckle and be gowls for the sake of it. That's one of the shitty things about doing it. Any type of speaking event at a festival. So I need all the 10-foot Brendas and perpetual Declans to show up and get your seats in the tent because they'll close off the tent when the tent is full and then if there's any goals, they're outside the tent. So come along to that if you're at Electric Picnic. This is my... I've been gigging Electric Picnic every fucking year since 2007. I hate festivals. (laughs) Nothing against festivals. It's just, to me, a festival is just a big loud field it's just a big field a big field full of thousands of people with multiple competing noise sources pointing at my head and then with electric picnic specifically wasps I've spoken about this before electric picnic it's it's at the start of September in end of August start of September it's right in the middle of wasp season so I'm up on stage and then a wasp flies into my mouth or a wasp gets caught in my bag. 
When I go to Electric Picnic, the first thing I have to do is that if I have the plastic bag on my head, I have to make sure that I can't drink beer, can't drink any sugary drinks. Because if I get sugar or beer residue on the lip of my plastic bag, I just get followed around by wasps. And I'm up on stage interviewing someone and there's a wasp interested in my face. Like I, t- I think it was Electric Picnic 2017. And that was the gig. That was the gig where the wasp actually did fly into my plastic bag. The wasp flew into my plastic bag on stage and then I punched myself into the face to get rid of the wasp from my bag. But nobody in the audience knew that's what was happening. And they're just at the gig and Blind Boy's punching himself into the fucking face for no reason. Then, then the year... The year after that... Who was it? The year after that then I was backstage and I met David O'Doherty, lovely man, comedian, very funny man, I had him on this podcast. I met David O'Doherty, lovely, friendly, wonderful man and I went up to chat to David O'Doherty backstage and he was with a friend of his and he introduced me to her and at the moment that he introduced me to her, I, I think a wasp flew onto my point, I just screamed into her face. I screamed into her fucking face and ran away. (laughs) And no one understood why it had happened. And I looked mad rude. I looked rude and odd. You see, the wasp can go into my bag. So it's not just about being stung. It's about a wasp being trapped between my face and a plastic bag. So it's a different situation for me. So I'm really looking forward to doing the gig. I love gigging at Electric Picnic. That's why I've been doing it since 2007. I just don't like the bits around the gig where it's a field full of people multiple sources of noise pointed at my head and wasps and then what happens tormented by wasps and then I'm smoking a lot of cigarettes smoking a lot of cigarettes I don't want to smoke because when you are being attacked by wasps smoking cigarettes is puffing the smoke out of the bag because when I smoke a cigarette with the bag on the cigarette smoke comes out of my ear holes and my eye holes and I can create like a cloud of smoke around myself and then wasps won't go near me but it means chain smoking cigarettes I don't want to smoke so come see me at Electric Picnic on Saturday if you're around please Friday the day before Electric Picnic I'm at another festival in Birmingham at the Mosley Folk Festival I don't know what the wasp situation is there in Birmingham I don't know so then I think my other gigs are sold out. I'll just plug my English tour. English and Scotland tour. London, Manchester, Liverpool, Coventry, Edinburgh. Edinburgh's sold out. Alright? A lot of those tickets are gone already. But London, Manchester, Liverpool, Coventry, Edinburgh. That's in November. That's my podcast slash book tour. Then I'm in Belfast in the waterfront on the 18th of November. And then I'm back in Vicker Street on Sunday the 19th of November for my official Irish book launch. So there you go, alright? Also pre-order my brand new book of short stories that's coming out in November. Topographia Hibernica, you can get signed copies of that. And buy Katrina O'Sullivan's book, Poor. If you've been enjoying Katrina's chat so far, go out and get her book. It's, it's on the best, it's, I think it's been number one bestseller non-fiction in Ireland for like 17 weeks. Fair play to her. So back to the chat with Katrina and in this part of the chat this is where we speak about education and the education system. How are you? Did you have a nice piss in the pint? 
Yeah. One day I'm going to walk out with my bag not on. By accident. I have to make sure it's on all the time. I have to keep touching my head. I was shocked by what you look like. Don't describe it to them. He's really handsome. Oh, thank you very much. You are. You... I thought you were hiding it because there was something wrong. <laughs> You're actually a bleeding fine thing. It's actually, this is the mad thing, because we were speaking about uh, my autism diagnosis backstage, you know. And one thing I realized, I've been wearing this bag since I was 16 years of age, you know. Wow. And now I'm in my 30s. And only when I got diagnosed with autism did I realize what the bag was about. Mm. Like, I want to do podcasts. I want to write books. I love this job. But what I don't like is... Th th if I didn't have this fucking bag, right, and I went on to the Late Late Show, think of the amount of small talk I'd have to do the next day in, <laughs> in, in Dunn's. Yeah. You know? I know. Seriously. I know. And that, to me, is, is actually quite frightening. Yeah. Um, I, I love having conversations yeah. like I'm having right now. But if I'm in a supermarket and someone comes up to me and wants to talk about the weather, mm. one thing I'd like to ask you about, and this is something where I find this bag quite useful. Mm. So, like, I'll speak about mental health loads on my podcast, and I'll, I'll really speak about my vulnerability, because I always find the best way to speak about if you're open about the things that you're terrified about yourself, then that can establish a trust with other people. Yeah. And if I didn't have this bag and I was out having a pint, people would come to me and they'd be very, very vulnerable because of something I said during the week, and I couldn't provide that person with an environment of safety. Uh, I, Do yes. you worry about that? No, like, I'm happy for people to speak to me about their vulnerabilities. So, like, I, ha I feel really privileged when somebody... Um, I, feel, I feel like I'm capable of holding a space for somebody who wants to share something with me um if it's really so I, did, I had a situation recently where a woman just completely she just read my book obviously so I just finished it and my marriage broke down and I was abused as a kid and it's affected my whole life just and obviously like when you've experienced uh, abuse like pe people just talking about it it's was this a stranger a stranger yeah, yeah. just trigger it can be triggering you know, mm -hmm. emotionally, you, you, you've kind of got to mind yourself a bit. But I also was like, I, you know, I know how to respond to someone like that. I know. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm really, really privileged. That you've, I'm really glad you felt safe enough to say that to me. And I would recommend that maybe have you been to therapy mm -hmm. and thought about talking about that if you can see it's affecting your life. And so I really don't mind it. I, I feel privileged. Like the one thing I love is being sent messages about the book and people... Like, it comes in two, two types. One is, like, thank you so much. It's all, the majority is women. Some men, which is lovely as well. But the majority of women saying, thank you for speaking so openly and honestly. Mm -hmm. And But then there's also people, like, I was arrested when I was 13 for robbing a pair of red shoes. And I didn't do it. I didn't run in the shop, put on a pair of red shoes and run out. I didn't, I swear. But this policeman arrested me, arrested me three times actually. He used to try and get me in the back of the car and ask me, and like bully me a little bit and ask me to grass on my brothers and their friends and stuff. And um, Oh, like, he was planning you against your own family? Yeah, like... Oh my God. And I got an email from him. <laughs> and the email said, um, I'm really, I read your story um, I hope I don't know if you remember me. I did remember him because he was gorgeous as well. Um, <laughs> he was. He was bleeding. Oh my god. Anyway, and he was only 19. I didn't know. So he sent me a message, 
And he said, I'm really sorry for the way I treated you and your family. He said, I was 19, I didn't have a clue. Um, and in my, career, I've, in my career, I've learned not to be so judgmental or whatever. And uh, I just want to say, like, I never saw in you, I knew there was always something in you, but I never saw this, and I'm really delighted to see your life is amazing. How did that feel? Oh, I was, I cried and was also like, I wonder if he's still good looking. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I wrote, yeah, I wrote back to him. I actually wrote back and uh, said, you know, thanks. I, re I remember you and I remember you trying to get me to grass on my brothers. And um, he, and I wrote from Dr. O'Sullivan because he didn't address me properly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't ever use doctor, only with the Littlewoods catalogue. But for him, I was like, yeah. This is a fucking doctor here. Um, not the red shoes robber anymore. <laughs> but um, he, yeah, so he, ba he came back. Sorry, I should have addressed you correctly. Um, but he just said, I'm really sorry. I, I didn't know. And that's lovely. So I've had loads. I had another a god message me privately and say, I'll never, ever see the world the same again after reading your book. Ah, that's class. And, th and then teachers, so many teachers. Yeah. Because I wrote it for teachers. Two teachers changed my life. Like that's what I wanted to speak to you about like you mentioned in the book about uh, and this is I had the same experience mm. for me I think back to one or two teachers who believed in me yeah. when the rest of them were calling me a little shit yeah. and how hugely important that was for me but also and some of the questions I had online any lots of people who had a tough time in school have that one experience but how do we move beyond as a society relying upon that, relying upon that one teacher who is compassionate and human and who puts the effort in? There's something sad about that too. Yeah, really There's something sad, sad about wh wh this one exception, do you get me? Yeah. Like, can you speak about that? Yeah, so the inconsistencies in education is something that I research and I'm really passionate about trying to change. So like how we recruit teachers and who we recruit to be our Ooh, teachers, yeah. it needs to change. Mm -hmm. So like fundamentally here in Ireland, like we do have, a, like you can go to secondary school and you can be in a classroom here with an amazing English teacher. Mm -hmm. And an hour later, you can be with an absolute yes. wagon yes. of a religion teacher or a or science someone teacher. someone who just does not care. And like the reality is, when you're privileged or when you come from a family where there's care and love and there's finances, if you have a bad teacher, your family can supplement that. So, like, if you're a bad maths teacher, all the parents talk about it in the mammy's group. And they mm -hmm. all go, oh, Miss Smith is terrible. And then they buy a tutor and they sort it out and the kids survive and then they move on and they get a great leaving cert. But if you're in a poor school, a desh school mm -hmm. or a disadvantage and you have a bad maths teacher, or s that can fuck you for your life. Mm -hmm. You can be fucked forever because your mm -hmm. family doesn't actually know or doesn't understand the system or doesn't have the money to supplement. So like from my point of view, it is not, and I do talks all the time in school and I'm like, mm -hmm. it is not acceptable for any teacher to know that some teachers are bad and that you've got a bad teacher in your school. You need to challenge that. That's my view, but also how we recruit teachers. We, the first thing is, why do you want to be a teacher? Not because you have a fucking history degree and you've nothing to do with it. Like you should do, yeah. become a teacher because you care about the future of children. The one thing about teachers is this, when I talked about myself as a child, if you imagine I, I'm walking around with a lot of darkness in here, like I was, you know, there's loads of darkness because of what's going on. I'm in school and I'm thinking, is my dad going to be arrested? Will he be alive? Will the police be there? Like we're visiting him in prison. My mom's prostituting herself. This is the stuff that I'm navigating. And so there's a lot of darkness in here. 
And teachers have the power to actually to light you up. Mm-hmm. Like, and so I had two teachers, Miss Arkinson, firstly, the first day of school, I walked in and she was like, because in England they always call me fucking Catriona. I'm so annoying. <laughs> My name's <laughs> Katrina, just because it's got a K, I don't understand. But she straight away, she's like, Katrina, hello. And okay. she's, from, she's from Ireland. She's like another, okay. a little Irish girl. And immediately, like, I'm suspicious, but also this teacher, she fed me every day. No shame. Wow. She fed me every morning. So and she then knew. She knew. You couldn't miss it. Like, I smelt of wee. Like, it genuinely yeah. was that kid who had nits. But she also taught me how to wash myself. Oh, wow. She, had a, she brought fresh knickers in. Um, and I had a little bag on her desk and took me in the bathroom one day and gave me Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday knickers. And she took me in and she, it was not, and I felt ashamed because mm-hmm. I knew she knew I was pissy because they all called me pissy, mm-hmm. the kids. But she made me feel like I could do something mm-hmm. for myself. And, um, and then there was Mr. Pickering. So when I went to secondary and I was that bolshy girl who didn't give a fuck, who threw stuff at teachers, this teacher, he didn't let me. He didn't... He, he didn't let me, he made me want to learn. Yeah. That teacher who like loves his subjects and he's reading the English and I'm like, oh, I don't want to be, I want to be cool, but I love this. And he went above and beyond. You don't want to let yourself down by messing in his class. Yes. Yeah, they're great ones, them. But one, so I was brilliant at English. I was bringing, yeah. I loved books, so I read and I was good. And I'd always read out loud for him and he would, I knew the stuff, like I could feel the stimulation in his class and I felt like I wanted to please him. And when I was thir- 14, like my parents were piss heads then, so they mm-hmm. went from the gear to the, the drink, which happens, you know, which was worse. Give me a heroin addict any day over an alcoholic. And I, I went, uh, one day it was parent-teacher meeting and um, the door knocked on my house in the evening. It was <laughs> Mr. Pickering, that was his name at the door. And I opened the door and I'm like, hey, sir. I'm like, shit, I'm in trouble. Because you weren't supposed to bring anybody to the door. Don't bring the police, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. wagman, whatever. And uh, he says, your dad there? And I said, yeah. So my dad went to the door and I'm standing behind the door. And he, he says to my dad, um, hey, Mr. O'Sullivan, I was hoping to see you tonight at parent-teacher meeting. My dad's like, oh, yeah, I was busy. And he said, um, I just wanted to let you know your daughter's amazing. Wow. She's really intelligent. And you should be ashamed of yourself for not supporting her. And, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, I was listening and like I must have, I actually grew two feet I think in that moment but that dark there was a light placed in there and like that light didn't just go when he was gone that stayed with me my whole life mm-hmm. like teachers have the power to change how you feel about yourself forever and the thing about Mr Pickering is I left school then a year later pregnant he mm-hmm. actually died he didn't see this Mm-hmm. He didn't see the impact he had. And sometimes teachers, I think, forget that it's not just about learning maths and English and leaving certain points. Like, you have the potential to transform how a child feels about themselves and views themselves. And I think we need to make sure that every classroom has a person in it that knows that rather mm-hmm. than this inconsistency. And especially for poor kids, because we don't have the other things to protect us. So, like, that's six hours in a day is fucking pivotal. Mm -hmm. It's either going to shape us or fuck us, basically. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important that we really consider who teaches us and how they teach us. And there's amazing teachers out there. I have met the most amazing teachers in this journey. Don't get me wrong, I'm not slagging them. But the ones that are bad, they need to get the fuck out of the profession and we need to get good ones in and keep them in. Um, 
there was something beautiful you said there about the ability of a teacher to, to light up the person. And I couldn't stop thinking about, we were chatting about Carl Rogers backstage. And Carl Rogers' theory of, of the human self yeah. is humans grow um, organismically. We're, we're like the way that a plant will move towards light. Yeah a human will naturally move towards the light of the best version of themselves, yeah. nice things, love. But if that human is trapped in a closet, yeah. then they won't find that light. No. But compassion and love and respect can help us to get that light within us, and that's what those teachers did. Exactly. Um, when you speak there about, you know, we need to get the bad teachers out and we need to find an environment where the right people are going for this job, how do we do that? Oh, well, How does that happen? And is there a model where yeah. it's working? Yeah, so there's a brilliant model in Finland. There's a brilliant model. The Nordic comes have great. So They're doing every single time. No. I could bring someone on for housing. No. And I go, where is it going well? But no. Well, up in Norway, <laughs> yeah, they're doing it well. Yeah. Well, they're but getting everything fair, right. No, they're not, because they do have a high rates of suicide as well. Okay. So don't get me wrong. They're, they're not doing everything right. But the reality is they interview teachers. So they mm -hmm. interview them. So we don't do that. You just make an application. You don't even have to say. You, don't, you can hate kids and become a teacher in this country. Mm -hmm. I think there's a few. I know, yeah. yeah. But like you, you, so like we, we need to think about, we need to think really meaningfully about how we recruit and ask them why they're doing it. So like for me, it would be, is care, like evaluate their care, their capacity to care more than their grades. And then the other issue is, like diversity in teaching. So I, I ran a program called Turn to Teaching, which was about trying to make teaching more. So there's a lot of groiners and roisins in, yeah. in, 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 in primary education. Nothing wrong with groiners and roisins. Love you if you're here. But like there's a lot of people from Galway and Sligo yeah. and sometimes Claire who, who aspire to be primary school teachers. And their parents are often primary school teachers. The only country really, 80% yeah. of our teachers have a family member who is a teacher. Well, it's nurse, doctor, priest, teacher. But it's not like that in other countries. So it's very elite here in Ireland. We have a very okay. inherited, teaching is inherited and so is God's. It's mad. And so like, we don't really check that that, ha like just because your man was it, would you be good at it? And so we definitely, and then the diversity piece. So like if we're we expect, it's very high points, 500 plus to become a teacher for something in DCU. So like what you're getting is this high concentration of a certain type of person. Same mm -hmm. in psychology. Mm -hmm. Who? So what happens is you get like a group think in the group yeah. and their belief about human behavior, human potential, education, it's all the same because they're all like coming from the same background and they've all succeeded from the same background. Mm -hmm. So then their expectation of kids is based on that. And we don't really teach teachers about poverty. Like, they don't learn about social inequality at all, really, in teacher education. They do one placement in a desh school. But imagine Roisin from Galway, who had a lovely, lovely, lovely life, fucking in the middle of Ballymun, going... And the kids are like... She's, you, I, I met a teacher last week. She said, when I went to school, we used to stand up and say a prayer, and everyone would stand up and say a prayer. And you'd say, say your prayer, and they'd all stand up. And she said, then I went to Clintorkin... And I tried to get them to stand up. They're like, fuck off. <laughs> so, like, basically what happens is the teachers, not their fault necessarily, because they're not being taught, but the teachers are being thrown in as in desh placements with kids who have concentration of poverty and issues or whatever, and they're, like, reinforcing 
this idea that the, the teachers already have about them. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is really educate people, that's why I wrote my book, about poverty, about how it manifests in the classroom. Like kids don't want to sit on their ass for six hours when they're fucking traumatized. Mm -hmm. They may need to go to the back of the room. They might need movement. They might need to paint. Yeah. And 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 learn play, that way. Where does play therapy, music therapy, things like that come into this? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it comes in. Like what you have to do in terms of therapy is find what works for the individual. Yes. Particularly kids who are unable to express. So young kids particularly respond well to play therapy, for mm -hmm. example. It's a really good way of trying to get kids to resolve or express themselves. Outside or of words. Outside of words. It's really, really great. And we, you know, we lack so much funding for them things. It's really tough. Well, there's also a cultural attitude that... Like, I, I, art for me in school wasn't just something I was good at. It was something that made me feel emotionally regulated. And I was told every day that art wasn't a real subject, that this is messing, this isn't, do you know what I mean? You have to, that there's real subjects and there's fake subjects. And that then gave me a lot of shame around this thing that I love doing. Yeah. But now I look back and I go, that was me managing my mental health through painting and drawing yeah, it's and listening to music. I suppose there's more that we can do around creative stuff. It's weird because the head of the national, like I've ne I, like going to an art gallery feels like really weird to me. It's intimidating. Intimidating. And it's, and it's art galleries and the art world yeah. is exclusive and intimidating the same way that academia is. Yeah. It's this forced solemnity that pushes you out. What we have here, you have to be real smart to understand this. And if you don't get it, you're stupid. I know. And that's ridiculous. It's a fucking plaster of Paris of someone's dick. I know. <laughs> with a lot of big words beside it. Like, I know. <laughs> and it only services capitalism. I did like the vaginas one now, the plaster of Paris of all the women's vaginas. And then like they tried to get the women to identify which one was theirs. And well, the that's love. That's participatory art. That's <laughs> good. That's where you bring people into it. <laughs> and then they got their husbands in and they didn't have a fucking clue. <laughs> Well, uh, sorry, no, but yeah, so art, the National Gallery, actually, when the book came out, they were like, they got in touch, and I have a meeting with them, and not slagging them, but I have a meeting with them, because they want to be, they want to get more diversity mm -hmm. in into the gallery, and I'm like, how the fuck, I've, I've never even been in, like, I don't, you know, it terrifies me, but they've asked me if I'll meet them, and I'm shitting, I'm hoping that they don't fucking get a painting out and start asking me to analyse its, its but background. You know Laugh at it. Yeah. Laugh at like here's the thing. Galleries are very like churches. Yeah. If when you go into a gallery, something like the Tate, you know, a modern art gallery, the one thing you're not allowed to do is laugh. And people walk around galleries in this silence. And do you know what the silence is when people walk around galleries? They look at the art and they go inside their head, I haven't a fucking clue what this means. <laughs> And I'm, I'm going to be real silent because I'm terrified that the person beside me I thinks know. I don't get it. I know. So I'm just going to be quiet. I know. Like I'm in a fucking church. I know. But uh, that's there. That All that does is service capitalism. I know. If you can get these paintings and these objects and create this fear around them, then it's like... That's why it's worth that much money. But it's fucking bullshit. The irony. Laugh at the art. Yeah, there's a there's a thing in like so when we talk about like how you get kids to like change their class and like become more middle class. There's this thing called cultural capital. You've probably mm -hmm. heard of it, right? Hipsters. So hipsters are the, are the banker. Hipsters are the stock market but, people of cultural capitalism. That's like, what they do. <laughs> but the the thing about it is is like one of the things that cultural capital is is like visiting art galleries. So like you know there's this. There's there's programs in universities that takes 
poor kids mm-hmm. to universities to make them more middle class. Mm-hmm. And it's so fucked up because like like you said, like you you you, you can't just go from no art experience yeah. to like all of a sudden understanding what this is. It's yeah. so awkward. It's like the other thing is like that thing of like dress dress to impress or something. Yeah. It's like we can't actually have our own art and express that art, like graffiti or exactly. whatever, or piss artists. Do you know, like we can't actually though express ourselves in a way that suits our community. You have to go and be part of this community. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was a kid, we did go, we did go to the one, the matchstick men one. That was, and what was amazing. Oh, is that Lowry? Lowry. Yeah. And Lowry was like, and what was brilliant was that He Lowry, was a working class a working artistic class, painter. Yeah, it was yeah. working class. And we heard the whole story. So when we went to see his art, I was like, oh, this is cool. This man is like a fucking miner. Like he was living in the mines or whatever he was doing. And if you don't know Lowry's paintings, he just used the, these really simplistic paintings. Match and it was, just, it was just people on the way to work yeah, in, in like men. Manchester and Birmingham. Yeah. And you had all the t- towers and everything. And it was... Also, he's, seen, he's called a naive artist in that the way that he drew was naive, but that makes it accessible. Yeah. You're going, I could kind of do that. This seems simple. This guy isn't trying to tell me that he's better than me. Yeah. And like, I'm conscious when I'm speaking, you said it when we're out, when we're outside, like that there are probably people in the room who are really privileged and there's people in the room that are from Summer Hill or whatever who get what I'm saying. Like, I have no problem. Like, I would have loved to grow up middle class. Like, I fucking how, man? If I had food every day, imagine how deadly I would have been. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. realistically, if I'd have had everything, like, I did great with nothing. So imagine what I'd been. So I've no problem with people who have, who have stuff, who have privilege. Mm-hmm. My problem is, is when it's accrued and kept for yourself. And, like, when it's the hoarding. used. The hoarding. And then yeah. that people don't use that privilege to try and make it a bit fairer for people like me who really didn't have opportunity, really don't have opportunity. So, you know, I'm conscious that I'm like slagging Groinia from Galway. Hopefully Groinia from Galway is not in the room. I've no problem with rich people, privileged people, teachers. My problem is when you don't use the privilege that you have, it might be even just in a conversation with another person who says something bad about a traveller. Mm-hmm. Or uses the term knacker. Mm-hmm. It might be that. Or it might be actually going and fucking electing an, uh, someone who isn't prejudiced and biased. But like my, so my issue isn't, I don't have issues with middle class people. I love them. I work with them and I have friends. My issue is always when you're not making it fairer for people like me. Because we die. Have you heard of um, Gabor Mate's argument? Where Gabor Mate speaks about trauma, but he looks at the elite as also traumatized individuals, just a very different trauma to the trauma of poverty. See, one of the things that really bothers me in modern society is the way we throw around the word trauma. Trauma, yeah. Like yeah. people like break a nail and say they're fucking traumatized. Yeah. And like, so I teach about trauma. You know, there's, like, there's definitions of trauma in psychology that talk about like rape, abuse, murder, witnessing it vicarious trauma whereby a family member may have experienced a trauma and you mm-hmm. relived it with you but there's specific definitions of trauma so every like trauma can happen to any walk of life but the truth is it's more likely in in poorer communities yeah and so yeah i've a, so i agree with him that there's definitely trauma, but in terms of the proper definition what of trauma... Words, uh, when I was talking to Sharon Lambert about this, Sharon says there's big T's and little T's. Yeah. And that's how she differentiates it. What words would you use to describe 
when you hear the word trauma being thrown around at everything, what other words are there for something that definitely isn't trauma, but it's unpleasant? Uh, it's unpleasant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that on Twitter, though. <laughs> it's I'm unpleasanted by all of this. So, like, a difficult, you know, like, don't get me wrong, like, this difficult, like, bullying, for example. Mm -hmm. Like, bullying or, or being rejected yeah. or having a difficult, or falling out with friends or having a fight with somebody. There's definitely, and, like... Suffering, I think, is a good one. Suffering is a good one. There's, like, but there's actual... So, I, I did a newspaper interview recently because there's some people who, who claim that trauma is necessary to like be successful in life. Yeah, I heard the the, the, the CIA absolute the bullshit. The CIA say that that the CIA's official line. I'm serious. <laughs> the CIA's official line within psychology is successful people are people who have had the right amount of trauma. No, well that's not that's not It's the true. CIA now so like their yeah. their goals like. Yeah, yeah. But the but the reality is like trauma like kills people mm -hmm. emotionally. Like so if you've heard of like you know there's you can count the amount of trauma. So six or more, basically, you're fucked in your life. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's so there's lots of stuff. So, owning trauma, there's no harm in saying, I had a difficult experience, I experienced bullying. These things can actually encourage resilience sometimes if you come mm -hmm. through them. But, like, real trauma actually causes significant psychological harm, mm -hmm. and it's very difficult to recover from. And if you have more than one trauma it can be really, really hard to recover from it. So like... And when you say psychological harm, do you mean like it can impact how the brain grows yes. or the nervous system or... This is what I teach. In the body. Like yeah, so like it, it affects our memory first. Mm -hmm. It affects... And, and there's a really... The oldest part of our brain is the, is, is the most important bit. It's the bit that tells us to eat, to shit, to have sex, to do all the things that we need to do to survive. But when we have trauma, and it also tells us when we're under attack. Mm -hmm. So it tells us, like, run, the fucking lion is going to get you. But so when you're traumatized, you get a flood of chemicals in mm -hmm. your brain, okay? And the flood is in that fear section, it's in, and it's in your hippocampus and your memory, and in the frontal part of your brain. Mm -hmm. And that flooding in the fear center makes it hyperactive. So what happens is you have a deficit in the memory bit. So you have, first of all, you have this hypervigilance. So like you're, you're on guard all the time. Like this was, this is me. I, you know, it, it, as a child, I was like awake. I knew everything that was happening in a room. Mm -hmm. I still kind of do, which is unfortunate because there's loads of people here. But like, <laughs> I still, I, it's still a thing in my brain that I'm like aware, I'm waiting on the danger. But also the memory piece is like we can misinterpret threat. So small signs of threat become big signs of threat. Mm -hmm. So like if someone like turns their face to you or is in a mad mood with you, trauma can make that seem as if it's a bigger emotional issue. And that's actually biological, biological and very difficult to heal. And so trauma in itself changes our biology and there's loads of evidence for that and makes people really aware of their environment, really afraid a lot of their time. And that fear affects everything. So mm -hmm. IBS, your stomach turning, your heart pounding, high blood pressure, all of that is affected from having trauma because that piece of your brain that's really fundamental to survival has been flooded and changed because of that trauma. And then the memory piece is, so our memory piece, when we've had the trauma, a shock, a really scary thing happen, our memory part is changed as well. It becomes, like, it, it filters the environment for fear and scary stuff. And so, like, you can turn your face at me, and all of a sudden I'm like, he's going to attack me. Or he's, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, my memory is, is warped. Oh, well, and so yeah. there's these biological bases of trauma that are very difficult 
to heal. You can heal them. But also, like, I think when people just say, I was traumatized, it fucking diminishes mm -hmm. people who actually have had to live or do live with the consequences of trauma. So, like, it would be great if people just educated themselves a little tiny bit about what trauma is so that we can just be mindful of people who actually are surviving or are yeah. trying to heal. Like, I suffered a lot of trauma in my life, real trauma. And it bothers me. Sometimes I'm on Instagram, like, she fucking says that again. I'm going to teach her what fucking trauma really is. <laughs> and I can't, because then you turn into this bitter kind of person. And I don't want to get into battling with influencers on Instagram. I'll do it just privately. So she's a cunt. I fucking hate that one. Mute, mute. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, a lot of what you're speaking about there, is this like recent science? Because I know from even saying there that the psychological impact of trauma can manifest itself in how your tummy behaves. Yeah. Like, a few years ago, that was seen as holistic and airy-fairy. Is this now being accepted within psychology? Are people waking up? Whole body, the whole body, the mind and, and the body connected. Well, I think in psychology, it's different too. So, by, so in terms of, like, uh, medicine, like, yeah. it has been accepted. So, like, pe research has shown that people who've been through significant trauma are more likely to have autoimmune diseases, disorders, or more likely to have IBS, even though there's loads, loads of questions. Mm -hmm. But loads of, like, gut issues are related specifically. And that's not, like you know, some fucker selling, like, some yogurt online yeah, 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 to fix yeah. all your gut issues. This is, like, neuroscience that's looked at brain function of people and looked at biological, you know, disorders and connected the two. So there definitely is evidence. And whether it's accepted or not, there's so much... So, like, in terms of trauma... It's all very inconvenient for capitalism, everything you're speaking about. <laughs> like, it is, like... Yeah, of Because course. you're talking about people's diets, you're talking about people's, like... The powers that be don't want this. They want something more simple that can be solved with a pill. Yeah. We all want something. Like, I went years after my mom died. When my mom died, I really wanted a solution to what was wrong with me. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, like, we all want an eat. I think that's natural, though. Like, when we... I know the there's capitalism. Resistance. There's capitalism and there's the fuckers who make money out of it. Yeah. But then there's also humanity. And, mm -hmm. like, we want... It's, we want the simple answer mm -hmm. always like the hard answer is too is hard yeah. so like it's our natural biology to to make things make decisions as quickly and easy and efficiently as, po as possible so like the simpler solution is sometimes to look for the pill the rather than necessarily go to the blame them, it to, was them it or, was them over or, there yeah. they did this or to go to therapy for fucking 10 years and yeah. try to resolve the complex trauma. So, like, the pill may be the easier answer, but I wouldn't diminish medication of either course, yeah. because, like, people genuinely... I, I really believe people need to find their own way and, like, find their own solution. So I'd never judge anybody for looking for answers in whatever way they do. I do judge, like, corporates or industry yeah. or governments that make money out of poverty or try and manipulate us. Mm -hmm. But individually, I think we all have to find our own way. But in terms of trauma itself, it is so hard to recover from it. And, like, I am one of five. And, like, so here's me in this, this wonderful place. I'm a PhD. I've three kids. They're happy, healthy. I'm married. Like, the most success I have in my life is that I love my husband and he loves me. 
That's my success. PhD, fuck it, who cares anyway? The reality is that I'm able to stay married and I'm able mm -hmm. to love and be loved. And like then I've the five of us, there's the rest of us who are all just in this path of like despair. Some are doing okay, but like my brother, my sister, prisons, homelessness, kids in care. Like it's really hot, sad what trauma can do to a whole family and a whole person. And it, you inherit it sometimes. Mm -hmm. My mum was traumatized, mm -hmm. so was my dad. So poverty, trauma, it actually continues and is inherited. And without intervention and support, I don't know how it ends for people. Do you know anything about epigenetic trauma? Can you speak a bit about that? I don't know anything about that. No, but I mean, you don't, do. or you're not, you're not allowed to talk about it because No, of no, no, I do. In terms of like, in terms of your like family. Like literally, when you spoke about inherited there, there's yeah. not just learning behaviors, yeah. but how people's genes are changed. Yeah, so this is, so this is the type of research now that's so, I, I think we use, like, there, we don't, we cannot map the genome. We haven't mm -hmm. fully done it. We cannot say, in, like, no one can say that my trauma was inherited. Mm -hmm. That's epigenetic because th it's very difficult to separate your environments from your genes. So, like, remember, I'm born from my mum was traumatized and she was lived in poverty, alcoholism, abuse, and her, and everything else. And she gave birth to me. There is no way to separate my environment from my genes. Okay, so we we definitely I definitely have inherited, but the the idea that my genetics has been changed mm -hmm. based on her genetics that is way beyond what science has found okay. as of yet. It's still yeah. there is theories on it, but in terms of separating your environment from your biology, it's so difficult to do. Mm -hmm. And we we have really innovative methods in terms of like we do twin studies, we do twin studies, we 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 track kids who are identical versus. Uh, Dizygotic di twins with monozygotic twins who are adopted, and we do our best to say there is some. So, for example, alcoholism. Mm -hmm. We know that like firstborn son firstborn sons of alcoholics react differently to their first drink than non sons of alcoholics. Wow. So they have worse they have worse biological effects. Than, so they have a worse hangover, it takes them longer to recover, and their first drink, their experience of their first drink. So there are studies like that that say, oh, there's definitely some genetic piece to this. But that might be because they've experienced all this trauma and they may have had a biological reaction from that. So it's very hard for us to say genes causes. We do know, though, if you grow up poor, your kids are likely to grow up poor. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're likely to die of suicide more than somebody who's not poor, have heart disease, go to prison, fail in education, be in a low-paid job. So we do know them things, and poverty does predict poverty. Irrespective of whether it's genes or social, it's still predicting it. Long answer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, Unfortunately, we've got the Vicar Street curfew. I, I could chat to you all night. Oh. Um, that sounds a bit weird, though. What? <laughs> <laughs> the, um, you've spoken with so much compassion and just from authenticity. The authenticity of your words, I felt every bit of it, you know what I mean? And everyone did in the room. This was such a beautiful, wonderful night. And Thank you. I just want to say, Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan, Thank you so much. Thank you. That was magnificent. Thanks to you, lads. Thank you. This is the Blind Boy Podcast. Have a, have a lovely night. Dog Thank bless. You. So that was my chat. That was my chat with 
Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan. I thoroughly enjoyed that. It was real long, but I couldn't edit any of that out. Her words were too impactful. Um, I loved every fucking second of that, and I hope to have Katrina back on again. Her book is called Poor. You'll get it in wherever you get books. I'm going to be back next week with a hot take. With a hot take about something. been reading a lot about Greek mythology recently. And I might start delving into Greek mythology. But in the meantime, rub a dog, genuflect to a swan, moan an otter. I have to do my kisses quieter. I always, I always sign off with a few couple of kisses. And last week someone complained that the specific pitch of my kisses was making them feel violently angry. <laughs> Which is called misophonia. Misophonia. When certain people can have intense emotional reactions to certain sounds. And this one man was just, I love your podcast, but I can't deal with those kissing sounds. And he wanted a, a trigger warning before the kiss, kissing sounds. And I said it wasn't necessary. I always do the kissing sounds at the end of the podcast. And when I don't do the kissing, some weeks I forget to add kisses at the end of the podcast. And I get a couple of emails from people who are experiencing a feeling of abandonment. So if you don't like the sound of my kisses, just turn it off at the end. Just turn it off at the end. It'll be grand. It's hard to keep everybody happy. Dog bless. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is an advertisement for The Equalizer 3, which is coming to cinemas on the 30th of August. In anticipation of the third and final chapter of The Equalizer, we're celebrating by channeling our inner Robert McCall, otherwise known as The Equalizer, who's played by the true action film GOAT, which means greatest hero of all time, Denzel Washington. So I joined up with the wonderful Mr. Scrobius Pip from the Distraction Pieces podcast. And we had a little chat. What would we do if we were the equaliser and we were being attacked by the Mafia? Alright, Scrobius Pip, are you excited for the equaliser 3? I am, I am. I, I re-watched the, uh, the first two recently in the build-up and it occurred to me, if you, like, there's a thing in TV, and there's a thing at the moment of TV daddies. Are you, are you familiar with this? I am not. So, so it's, it's particular actors who have... A daddy vibe. Ah. So, so yeah, I'm wondering who's going to be the TV daddy that comes out of the Equalizer Three. That's Denzel. 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 It's got to be Denzel. Isn't no, it? De- he is very paternal. There's, there's yeah. a, uh, like I would like bad news delivered to me by Denzel Washington. <laughs> yeah. If 100%. someone has to deliver bad news, he just he has that. Uh, I'm calm. It, there's a crisis happening, but I'm in control. Denzel just has that. Yeah. And yeah. P. 
Pip, in your recording studio, right? Like, if you were the equaliser. Yeah. And, like, the mafia broke into your studio. What, yeah. How would you defend yourself? Well, I've, I've, I've got a lot of... I'm a, a massive child. Blind boy, you talk a lot about the um, extended... Um, kittenhood or childhood of, of kind yeah. of our generation of people I've got a lot of art toys um, okay. and some of these art toys are chunky so, so behind me right now I'm leaning back I've got this crucifix made by a guy called Riker that's actually a stormtrooper on a cross mm-hmm. um, and the crucifix is m- made of parts of the Death Star so that was my first instinct as a weapon and then I looked along and I realised that, m- that me and Riker <laughs> We made a 12-inch art toy of me. So clearly, I'd grab the 12-inch toy of me <laughs> and batter them or and defend myself, in case I can't say batter them. Um, you would defend yourself with, a, with, with an effigy, a smaller effigy of yourself. It'd add to the confusion. That's like a weird dream. That's like, a dr- that's like the mafia broke in, and what did you do? I beat them with a smaller version of me. Or me, or me and my mates have always argued if you're ever in real real trouble and you can't, like, you know you're not that tough, strip naked. Because yeah. nothing scares a man more than a naked man. That's so very true. So I just true. think to really throw them off, just have this toy of myself as my defence mechanism. Uh, uh, what would you use? How sturdy is an ocarina? What I damage could be so. done with an ocarina? <laughs> I'm not very good. I'm not very good at at. at fighting or anything physical I mean I would have to distract them with interesting facts I love it if the mafia came in I'd have to I'd hit them with big ones like um, there's a town in Pennsylvania called Centralia and it's been on fire since 1962 wow there you go see I mean, the pause see, the, instantly. see yeah. that pause there like so even if someone's coming at me aggressively if you say it to somebody yeah, there's a town called uh, Centralia in Pennsylvania, and it's been on fire since 1962. I don't care if there's a gun pointed at my head. That person has to go, no, there's not. There's it's- a fire. And it's like, yeah, yeah. A mine shaft went on fire, and now the population of, of Centralia is, is only five people, and it's been on fire since 1962. Like, you just, you can't be aggressive when someone hits you with that. That's amazing. I'd deal with the Mafia mindfully. I'd use mindfulness on the Mafia if I had But to. it's got me thinking, I'd use my stammer. I've got a stammer. That freezes people. So I can throw th- throw that at them. That always kind of um, makes people confused. And empathy, as you said there, draws out empathy. Mm-hmm. So I think that'd be a good at least distraction tactic to to calm the situation. I think I genuinely think it helps in my podcast every now and then. Because it, it, it adds that empathetic... Um, feeling from your uh, the person that you're talking to so yeah i'd, I'd weaponize my my um disfluency that'd be a quite interesting action film actually pip yeah. i mean if, if you have an action film but the the hero isn't someone who uses violence but someone who uses facts and a stammer yeah <laughs> i'd watch that let's make it happen but if you'd like to see a decent action film then go and get sweaty with denzel washington the equalizer three which is in cinemas on the 30th of August.